Well, thank you for joining us. This Worldview Matters. This is Ross and my co-host Bob. We're glad to have you today. Bob, how you doing? Ross, I'm doing good. This second week of January 2013 is kind of dreary here in Atlanta where we are, but I'm looking forward to uh, to an early spring. How about you? Well, I'm down in Florida right now, so spring has come, if not That's some, it's, it's 80 something degrees outside. So well, too bad. I, I don't, I don't have anything to complain about from a weather standpoint, but uh, I'm sorry to hear that you've got cold weather, but I, I am coming your way in the next couple of days. So I, I will experience that. Ross, we got some exciting things to talk about in our show today. Well, we do. Last, last week, uh, we talked about the fulfillment of prophecy and, I was astounded at the number you quoted that the fulfillment of prophecy, just eight of the prophecies of the Old Testament, the probability of that occurring was 10 to the 17th power. And then uh, for fulfillment of, I think you said 57 of the prophecies, it was 10. 48 of them. 48 of them. It was 10 to the... 157th power or something that's like a number, that's a number that's so massive we can't even begin to get our 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 arms or or our head around that our mind around that you mean that's bigger than our national debt it's <laughs> actually actually it's close they're almost the same it's up in the trillions and trillions of numbers which we can't get our arms around or anything else around either so <laughs> well anyhow that's not the topic for the day, but if, if if that's the case, the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, one has to look at the prophecy about the second coming and say, if those were correct about the first coming in the Old Testament and the probability was so high, then you've got to look at the prophecy about his second coming and say, I've got to give that some pretty, uh, pretty much con- – uh, constructive acceptance because the probability of that coming true just from a statistical standpoint, given what happened with the first coming is probably true too. Well, you know, what's so amazing about this, of course, what we're talking about are the prophecies related to the Jewish Messiah. The old Testament is filled with these various prophets all the way from the book of Genesis through uh, the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the Old Testament, they're, they're filled with these various predictions of the first and then a second coming of the Jewish king, the Lord, their, their messianic Davidic king that was uh, told, promised to them through the prophets of what he was going to be like and how he was going to come, how he was going to live, how he was going to be born. There were 300 specific ones. And what we talked about was that Jesus of Nazareth fulfilled every single one of those. And the odds of that happening are indeed astronomical. Now, I think back to your point, um, I think that we can infer that if the first coming prophecies were fulfilled completely by him, there were lots of other prophecies related to his second coming that we should also hearken to and look at and go, wow, we need to pay attention to this. Well, we Christianity is a theistic worldview. There are three of those, obviously, as we've talked about, Judaism, Islam. 
But there's a big difference in Judaism and Christianity, and it centers around what you're talking about here. Maybe you can define what this difference is, because the, the Jewish people look at that prophecy and say it still hasn't been fulfilled in the coming of, of quote, the Messiah that we believe because he didn't come in a kingly way. Is that accurate, Bob, or you may want to expound on that a little bit? I think it is, and I think that one of the things we need to ask our listeners to do is to uh, sort of put on their thinking caps and put on their their reasoning caps as we talk about these things, because th- there is no overwhelming, irrefutable evidence, but there's plenty of evidence that make the case for Christ being the Jewish Messiah uh, something that's beyond a sh- beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's interesting that one of the things after his resurrection, of course, there's a whole debate about about that, which we can talk about maybe later in the spring as we approach the Passover and and, and Easter. But there's an amazing uh, story that happens after the resurrection of Christ. Many of our listeners, I'm sure, have heard about Jesus on the road to Emmaus. He was walking with a couple of of his disciples who had not yet recognized him as the risen Christ. And in Luke chapter 24, uh, they were mourning the fact that this hoped-for Messiah wasn't Jesus. They were confronted with the fact that because he had died, he therefore wasn't the hoped-for Messiah. And Jesus makes an incredible statement as he's walking with them. And this is in Luke 24. He says, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. And then it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning him. And so here are the risen Christ is explaining to these disciples who followed him on earth, but who didn't get a clear picture of what was going on, how he was indeed the fulfillment of the first prophecies about him. And also by implication, all the remaining prophecies that have not yet been true about him. So you're right, Ross. It's hard for many of the Jewish faith to understand that Christ is their Messiah. But God, through the scriptures, gives us ample evidence to believe that he was. And Jesus himself exhorts these disciples to look at the Old Testament scriptures and see how he was the fulfillment of all of those. Interesting. Is there any uh, one or two items on which the Jewish people of today hang their rejection of Jesus being the Messiah for which they have looked for some for all these years? Yeah, I think there is. I think what happens to to the Jew, the modern Jews is the same thing that really happened to first century Jews, as they read the Old Testament prophecies that were clearly about the Messiah. They couldn't, they couldn't reconcile these two pictures of the Messiah that the Old Testament prophets painted for them. There was one picture that revealed the Messiah as this powerful, you know, ruling, conquering king who was going to drive back all the Gentile kings that were coming against Israel, who was going to uh, cause Israel to be the greatest nation on the earth. And of course, that was the messianic hope of 
the Jews in the in the first century. It's also the messianic hope of many Jews today who are who are devout. They're looking for this Messiah who's a king and a ruler and a powerful, doesn't take any lip off of anybody kind of a God. The problem with that is, is in the Old Testament uh, prophecies embedded in those very same ruling prophecies were prophecies of, of a Messiah who was going to suffer, who was going to make atonement for the sins of his people, who was going to be uh, forsaken, who was going to be not esteemed by man. And the list just goes on and on. So you've got this, this dual picture of a Messiah who's coming, who's both a ruler and at the same time this humble servant. And it's hard to get your arms around both of those pictures. And because of that, people often miss the first coming of Christ. You know, there's an interesting passage. Um, And again, I just want to ask our listeners, if they would, to kind of bear with us. There's no way in, you know, 20 or 30 minutes, we're going to unpack everything we need to talk about. But uh, the Jews of Jesus's day, Ross, in John, this is a reference in uh, the Gospel of John chapter 8. They were talking to Jesus about being sons of Abraham, about this incredible heritage, this legacy that they have to be a nation from whom all the nations of the earth were going to hearken to and listen to, and that Abraham was going to be the spiritual father of that nation. And as they were talking to Jesus about being sons of Abraham, Jesus makes an incredible statement to them, and it got him in trouble. It's one of the few times when Jesus said something directly about his messiahship that the Jews really got up in arms about. And uh, this is the passage where Jesus said of Abraham, this is in John 8, 56. He says, I want you to know that Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He rejoiced to see my day. And basically he was saying, I was around when Abraham was here. And uh, Abraham was looking forward to the time of my coming. And the Jews responded to that by saying, you're not even 50 years old. Are you telling us that you saw Abraham? You see where this is going? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Jesus responds by saying, I want to tell you something. And he makes it really clear. He says, before Abraham was born. I am. (laughs) Yeah. In the English, it's translated I am. But in the Greek and in the Hebrew, that he uses a messianic title. He actually uses the name Jehovah. He says, before Abraham was basically Jehovah, the guy you're looking at who's a human being, I'm the God of that Abraham. And it, the Jews got it because their response to him was they picked up stones to kill him. Mm. They, they recognized that basically he was committing blasphemy. And you and I have talked before about the Jesus by claiming to be the Messiah, basically uh, ruled out any option of him just being a good man, which is what a lot of people want to believe that he is. By claiming to be the Messiah, he was basically claiming to be the Creator God. And if, when you, cl- <laughs> you know, Ross, if I claimed to be the Creator God, you'd call the people in the white coats to come and get me. You know, it's interesting that that's. That that happened, and they saw that what he was saying, and so they had to decide at that moment, is this guy a nutcase, or is he actually who he said he is? So the view is that they were looking at him as blaspheming 
and blasphemy and and that he was not actually Jesus. Correct? Is that what you're saying? That that, that passage says? Yeah, and the same thing happens at his trial. When when the, when they called him uh, basically in violation of the Jewish laws of that time, when they brought him to trial at night, uh, when there weren't really, he didn't have a chance to, to have a defense before him. Uh, at one point, but they still couldn't find anything to accuse him of a capital crime until Caiaphas, the high priest, basically said, I want to, I'm adjuring you. I'm commanding you as the, as the high priest of God, are you the Messiah? Now, here's a situation at Jesus' trial when it would have been very easy for Jesus to say, the Messiah? No, 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 you misunderstand. I'm not the Messiah. I'm just a good teacher. In right. which case, what probably would have happened is he would have been discredited. They probably would have flogged him, but they probably wouldn't have killed him. But that's not what Jesus did. What he did do was he quoted from the book of Daniel a messianic prophecy about this coming Lord. And he said, I'm going to tell you something. You're going to see me coming in the clouds of glory. You're not going to, you're not going to see me again until you see me in that day. And in response to that, the high priest tore his robe which is a sign of great disdain and of uh, a, a, a blasphemous uh, statement and said, we have no need for further testimony. This man has blasphemed the name of the Most High God. And so, he's, you know, here's Jesus, this human, but who claims to be the immortal, invisible God at the same time. Amazing. Amazing. That's the uh, Daniel 9, correct? Well, actually, that, that passage is in, is in Daniel 12. But, but it's funny you mentioned Daniel 9 because there's another passage there in Daniel 9 that Jesus does refer to when his disciples ask him about the end of the world. I know we're going to need to talk about this today because we talked about last time about looking ahead to not just the first coming of Christ, but the second coming of Christ. In, in Matthew 24, the disciples come to Jesus in response to Jesus saying, the temple's about to be torn down. All these buildings that you see, the Herod's temple that are so magnificent, I want you guys to know, Peter, James, and John, and the other disciples, that all of these stones are going to be torn down. That actually happened in 70 AD, Ross, when Titus, the the Roman general came in and destroyed Jerusalem, burned down the temple, and all the gold in the temple melted and ran into the cracks of the stone. So the Jewish, I mean, the, the Roman soldiers literally, to get at the gold, uh, tore every single stone apart. Uh, but Jesus' disciples, in response to Jesus' prophecy about the temple being destroyed, asked him, what are the signs of your coming? And he quotes a passage from Daniel 9 about the abomination that causes desolation, which is Daniel's near and far prophecy about an antichrist and then the antichrist. Now, here again, our, our listeners may be at this point going, what are these guys talking about? This requires a little bit of thinking and study to understand some of these Old Testament prophecies, but it's incredibly worth the effort. Uh, in fact, if I may just mention one more thing about that. Go right ahead. At another place, these same Jewish leaders who were looking for a ruling Messiah 
and were overlooking this suffering, atoning Messiah, uh, were basically talking to him about, about asking him to give them a sign to prove his messianic origins. Okay? And you might think, okay, that, that's legitimate. What we fail to remember, though, is that there were hundreds of signs taking place all around these guys. Jesus had been healing the sick. He had been, he had been causing the blind to see. He had caused a lame person to walk, a man with a withered hand to, to have his hand restored. He even raised Lazarus from the dead. So it's not that there weren't any signs going on. It's just that they weren't the signs that the Jews wanted him to perform. They wanted him to perform a sign, basically, that would reveal himself to be the king Messiah that they were expecting. But in response to that, Jesus says something very interesting. He says, I'm not going to give you guys a sign. At least I'm not going to let you bait me into giving you the sign that you want. But then he says something that's amazing. He says, but let me tell you something. You guys can look at the sunrise and the sunset, and you can tell what the weather is going to do. You can look at the signs of the seasons, and you can sort of tell uh, it's time to plant crops or it's time to harvest crops, whatever. And then he said this, but you can't discern the times that you're in. You can't figure out that this time that we're living in right now is my time. Now, Ross, the Apostle Paul picks up on that in Galatians 4.4 when he said, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman. That's a reference to back to Genesis where God prophesied to Adam and Eve that one day the Messiah would come. It's going to be the seed of a woman. Born under law, he's going to be a Jew, uh, and he's going to be the Redeemer. Now, the question is, what time should those Jews have recognized to know that their Messiah had come? What is that time? And Ross, I believe that's talking about that passage in Daniel 9 that you mentioned earlier, because that's a phenomenal passage in the sense that Daniel gives a time frame, a chronology, if you will, a schedule of when the Messiah would come the first time, and then he gives a hint about when the, when the Messiah is going to come back for a second time. It's amazing, this prophecy in Daniel 9. Now, what verse is that in Daniel 9, Bob? Well, the whole chapter really is about this incredible prophecy, this vision that Daniel has. Daniel had been studying the book of Jeremiah, and he recognized, which basically says prophecy in and of itself is wonderful, but it's no replacement for the study of the scriptures. Or we could talk about that another time, Ross, about how the scriptures are so important for maintaining a biblical worldview. But Daniel had been reading the scrolls of Jeremiah. And in, in Jeremiah, he read that there were 70, 70 years prophesied for the Jews captivity in Babylon. And again, let me, let me give our listeners a little bit of historical context here. Uh, the, the Old Testament prophets told, foretold about a time when the nation of Israel, because of its disobedience to God, was going to be overrun by the kings of Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. 
They were come, they were going to besiege Jerusalem, they were going to take the people captive from the land of Israel over into modern-day Iraq, over into Babylon. And Daniel, many of our listeners know the story of Daniel and the lion's den, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, in the fiery furnace. Well, you know, those are all stories from our, our youth and Sunday school lessons, but Daniel was one of those young men who was taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar over to Babylon, and he'd been there for several decades by now, and he's studying the scroll of Jeremiah, and he, he reads in there that Jeremiah had prophesied of 70 years of captivity, and then he was going to bring the Jews back into the land of Palestine. So Daniel, in, in, in Daniel chapter 9, begins to pray that God would give him understanding and revelation of when this is going to happen, specifically when they're going to be able to leave Babylon and go back to Palestine. And what God does is he gives him more than he asks for. He, he doesn't just tell him when they're going to go back to the land. God also tells him when the Messiah is going to appear and then he gives him this hint of when the Messiah is going to appear the second time. And he gives it through this vision that's known as the vision of the 70 weeks. Now, again, I hope our listeners will... It begins in verse 20, I think, of Daniel 9. That's right. The, 70, yeah, the 77s. Mm-hmm. Again, so so God, Daniel receives this vision from the Lord, this prophetic utterance from the Lord, of the 70 weeks that are decreed for the Jewish people, okay? And he says there's six six things that are going to happen here. Uh, Transgression is going to be finished. Uh, Sin is going to be put an end to. There's going to be a reconciliation for all iniquity. Everlasting righteousness is going to be brought in. Vision and prophecy are going to be sealed up, and the most holy will be anointed. And then God gives Daniel these three numbers. He said there's going to be seven weeks, and then 62 weeks, and then one week. Now, this is where it requires a little bit of Old Testament uh, scholarship, because he's talking in, in the context of this, a week is a span of seven years. Each of the Days of the week, the prophetic week equals seven literal years, or at least seven prophetic years. So basically what God says to Daniel, from time that a decree is issued to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem until the Messiah comes is going to be seven weeks in times of trouble, and then 62 weeks. The calculations of that, Ross, it means that from the time that uh, Ahasuerus uh, proclaimed to Nehemiah, uh, which many people, many scholars now know, we know the date for that. It's not just a biblical date, it's a historical date. It was March the 14th, 445 B.C. That's when uh, the... the uh, the median king gave authority to Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, rebuild its wall, and make it habitable again. It took Nehemiah and his contemporaries a whole generation to do that, 49 years to do it. And so, but at the end of that time, then it says there'll be another period of 62 weeks or 434 years 
when the Messiah is going to be revealed. Now, if you go back, this is why Jesus said to the Jews, you don't know the time, because God gives Daniel a specific number of years, 49 plus 434 until the time of the Messiah came. Now, Ross, this is where it gets amazing, and I know we're just about out of time. It takes a lot of Old Testament scholarship to figure this out. But Sir Robert Anderson, who was a Scotland Yard detective a century or so ago, calculated from March the 14th, 445 B.C., he calculated 49 years and then 434 years, and it brought him up to April the 6th, 32 A.D. You know what that day was, Ross? Is that, that the crucifixion? That was the day that most historians attribute to Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. That's when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the bank, on the back of a donkey, which is a symbol of kingship, but a, a humble king. You see what's happening here, the imagery? Right, yeah. That's... Within a few days, they had crucified him. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Well, let me just take an aside here and talk to our listeners for just a second. Uh, you've just heard probably a good master's degree in Bible prophecy over the past 15 to 20 minutes. My good friend of years and years, Mr. Robert, will not tell you this, but he is a Bible scholar. Uh, he was, even before that, a Rhodes Scholar finalist from Columbia University, so he's quite a, quite a bright guy and a fantastic athlete, holds a number of state records in Tennessee. So you're listening to a very, very bright guy, as you've been able to tell, if you've only listened to our show for the last 10 or 15 minutes. So, Bob, I thank you for bringing us up to this point, and I hope you'll pull all these things together over the next few minutes before we finish this show. We've got about five minutes left, so maybe you could um, take the first show we did on this, which is the biblical prophecy that led up to Christ's birth, and then go quickly through what you just went through to, to lead us to where we will go next week in continuing the conversation about the second coming of Christ and what the Scripture says and what we should have every reason to believe strongly will happen. Well, Ross, first of all, you were very kind in your remarks about me, and I appreciate that. Uh, maybe a little bit too gracious, but nonetheless, I do appreciate your affirmation. I, w I will say this, though, that uh, this is, a, this is a, a, a show about worldview. It's about how do we look at the world around us. And again, the words of Jesus should give us uh, a little bit of a, a, a reason to pause because Jesus said that the way we look at the world is incredibly vital to how we see God and his kingdom. And if our worldview is a good worldview, then our body is full of understanding and light. But if our worldview is skewed, then even though we might even be educated, we might even be incredibly bright, but our perception, our ability to see the times, to see how the world fits together, how the world's going to end, that, that whole perspective becomes a little bit skewed. So worldview is incredibly, incredibly important to us. And, and I say that because 
the, the prophet Daniel, and this is probably all we have time for today. We'll pick back up maybe next time on on that last week, Ross, that those last seven years, because Daniel says the people of the ruler who is to come at the end of that re- revelation of the Messiah, the people of the Antichrist, they're going to come and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. Now, Ross, we know that happened in 78. Absolutely. Happened. Jerusalem was destroyed, and the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. The Jews, I hope any Jews listening to this will go back and go, wow, I didn't realize that. That's why the temple was destroyed. It was in fulfillment to to Daniel's prophecy there. But Jesus himself, we don't have time for this today. Maybe we'll just leave this as our next caveat for our listeners. In Matthew 24, Jesus says, that ruler who's coming, that Antichrist who's coming, he's going to set up in the newly rebuilt temple, or, or maybe even on the Temple Mount, or perhaps next to the temple. We're not sure exactly. The language is a little hard to get your arms around there. But there's going to be a day in the middle of that seven-year period, right in the middle of it, and many scholars think that could be a ceasefire in Israel. In the middle of a peace plan, in the middle of a ceasefire, Antichrist is going to stand up and declare himself to be God, the God of heaven. And that is amazing. And Jesus said, if when you see that happening, and our listeners need to know this, because this is the second coming, when we see someone in who, as part of a covenant to the Jews stand up and say, I'm obliterating all the old covenants, and I'm telling you that I am God. That's when we all ought to go, uh-oh, trouble's coming. And uh, so, we'll, so we'll leave our listeners with that. we maybe pick up their next show, Ross. Great place. Wow. What a cliffhanger here. This is uh, hopefully people come back. You will come back and join us again next week when we'll continue where we leave off right now. But between now and then, let me ask you to go to listen to some other Big Brains media shows that we have, Auburn Unleashed, Bama Talk, and, you know, after what Bama did just a few days ago, I think a lot of people would like to go listen to what our, uh, our Bama Talk show has to say about that. There's another one called Eavesdrop, High School Heroes, Just Talking It Up, and, and of course, the the core show for Big Brains media is Weather Brains with James Spann. So we would love for you to listen to any of the other shows that we have on Big Brains Media. Let us know how you feel about these. We're very pleased to be able to have conversations with you in your car, in your living room, in your kitchen, wherever you happen to listen to our show. We're grateful for you doing that. We have a great time. Hopefully you have a great time listening to us. Join in with us. Send us a note. Love to hear from you. Bob, great being with you. Look forward to talking with you next week. Uh, I personally appreciate the education. I know everyone else out there does, too. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Ross. Good to be with you. This has been Worldview Matters, brought to you by Big Brains Media. To leave feedback for Ross or Bob, visit us at www.bigbrainsmedia.com.